0: morning, if you'd, like to go ahead and take your, if you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles out and open up to the book of Mark. We'll be looking there in just a moment uh, for the majority of our lessons this, this morning. Mark chapter 2, while you're taking your time to turn there, just want to again extend the welcome that Alan already extended. Uh, it is such a pleasure for all of us to be here. I am so lifted up every time I'm here. I, I love the... Uh, to, to, to be here with you all, but especially, i, I got to say, and maybe it's a little selfish, but I love that I get to teach the class downstairs right now. I'm teaching Easton and Hayden and, and Grace's class, and I think I am learning probably just as much as they are, if not more. Uh, that has just been such a benefit to me. Uh, and for, for those of you that maybe were thinking about that, been maybe on the edge, don't be. It is very worth, worthwhile your time to spend time down there with them. There was one more announcement that I uh, was made aware to me after services began. Uh, Alexa is sick this morning as well, as the reason for Aaron uh, excuse me, Aaron and uh, Ann not being here. So please keep Alexa in your prayers. Um, in the book of Mark, one thing that we've seen already, as we've studied this book, is that the, Mark just really jumps right in to the study. Of, of Jesus and His life. He doesn't spend a great deal of time uh, with His backstory in the way that Matthew and Luke do. He gets right into the ministry of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and, and if we could describe that work in one way, we might describe it as eye-catching. He has been doing many things already in the book. He has r- healed the sick. He has healed those that were lame or blind or injured. He has cast out demons. He's doing things that should get people's attention. In fact, it did in Mark chapter 1 verse 27. They were amazed. They were amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, "What is this a new teaching with authority?" He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. So news is spreading about Him. People are seeing what He's doing. And as we go on, we're going to find Him do other things as well. He raises the dead. He raises Lazarus. And He's going from place to place performing these miracles that are confirming the new teaching that they noticed there. This Word that He is preaching. The good news about Him. About what He had come to do for the world. But not all of the attention that He was receiving would be what we would consider good attention. You know, the, the old idea that there's no such thing as bad publicity. Well, he was getting some some attention, some note, notice from people, and it was not... Uh, in, a, in a very positive light. He received attention from the religious leaders that began to examine everything he did. Everything he, he, he said, everything that he, he did was under their sharp examination. It led to many confrontations. They were very unnerved as we talked about last Sunday with him f- eating with and being seen with sinners, with the tax collectors and, and harlots. Uh, they, they had a, a, a problem with that and they grumbled and complained about that. They also had an issue whenever He claimed to forgive sins, as in the case with the paralytic man. But in Mark chapter 2, verses 18-22, through 22, we see that they shift their eyes off of Him for a moment and onto those that were following Him, to His disciples. And they raise a complaint about Him, about their neglecting something that had become very central to the Jewish religion, and that was fasting. They had questions regarding fasting uh, and, and that of the, His disciples, who were not involved with that the way others were. And so they wanted to know, ask Jesus, why is this the case? So let's read that together. In verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to Him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, but the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it and the new from the old and the worst tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine... Into fresh wineskins. So, in this narrative that we have here, we we see uh, some questions that are being brought up. We see this examination of Jesus uh, that he was becoming accustomed to. They were constantly coming and bringing him these questions, oftentimes accusatory questions. And they come and they want to know why don't your disciples fast like the disciples of the other Jews? But in, re- in reality, we could probably say that they're really asking, why don't you fast like the Jews? Why don't your disciples fast like all of the Jews fasted? Because at this point, while both the disciples and John are, des- are described here in the disciples of the Pharisees, this is a very Jewish tradition. This is very centric to their lives and their religion. And the reason being was because... Or the reason being that this was a very common practice is because the old law commanded, in some regards, the idea of fasting. Turn over to Leviticus chapter 23 with me. Leviticus 23. And we'll start reading in verse 26. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any works on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If there is any person who will not humble himself on this same day, he shall be cut off from his people. As for any person who does any work on this same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no work at all. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generation and all your dwelling places. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you. And you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening. From evening until evening you shall keep your Sabbath. Now, over and over again, we heard the same phrase in this, in this passage. That you will humble your souls. Maybe your translations say something about afflicting your souls. Or some translations maybe just come right out and say that you are to deny yourself. We're going to speak more about that in a minute. We're going to speak more about what those words mean, but going back to this, this is the only time that we find a commandment from God that says, you are to keep a fast. And I know it does not use those words, and as I said, we'll get into that in just a second. But prior to this, we don't see examples of fasting. We don't see commandments for fasting. But after this, after this, it becomes a whole different story. After this, we find Jews fasting for varying reasons, for varying lengths, and in varying degrees of abstinence. Some fasted for the sick. You might remember David. After having a child with Bathsheba, and which resulted in, in the murder of her, of her husband, Uriah, David finds out that the child is sick, and he fasts and he prays uh, for the whole time that the child is sick. And once the child dies, remember, he gets up and he clothes himself. And he And he takes food. Uh, there are other examples of people fasting in the Old Testament. Moses, Moses, after receiving the Ten Commandments, he comes down from Mount Sinai to find the, the children of Israel have created a golden calf. So quickly, they had turned from the God who had brought them out of Egypt, the God that had brought them to where they were, and said, now we are going to create an image, and we will serve that image. And he, he was heartbroken, and he was angry, and he destroyed the tablets, and, and then he fasted, and he prayed. In fact, as we will find in a moment, he, he fasted and prayed for a, a great length of time in that case. Fasts, speaking of time, sometimes only lasted a day. Oftentimes in the Jewish idea of a day, that was sunrise to sunset. So we're talking about maybe 16, 18 hours at most. But there are other fasts, like as I just spoke of of Moses, that went for great periods of time. Moses, in fact, is one of three fasts that lasted 40 days and 40 nights. And the other two would have been Elijah and Jesus in the wilderness. And then there were other times fasts that include abstaining from just food. They would maybe have no food throughout the day, but they would take water, they would take drink, and when the sun set, they would take food and and restore their nourishment. But other ones, again, like Moses, had no food, no water. That tells me that Moses and Elijah, they they were probably divinely supported in that, 40 days and 40 nights without food and water. But what we see in this example is that there was varying different degrees and reasons that they went in and they would have a fast. And in fact, by the time we get to Jesus' day, what God had commanded on the Day of Atonement was now something that was done twice a week by most Christians. If you look over in Luke chapter 18, excuse me, by, by most Jews. If you look over in Luke chapter 18 and in verse 12, the, well, actually we'll start in verse 9. This is the, the, the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee and the tax collector, as they go into the temple to pray. Uh, and we see in this parable Jesus describing the attitudes of them. and He describes first the Pharisee. In Verse 10 says, The man went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank You that I am not like the other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You, you see how this had become for them a status of spirituality. Not only was it commonplace, it was now ceremonial, it was now ritualistic, it was now something that they did to, to stand out from amongst all the other ones around, all the people around them to say, look how, how holy I am, look at how spiritual I am. And even Jewish writings record some of this as well. It was very common. So that brings us back to our question then. Why, why don't Jesus' disciples fast? Why aren't they fasting like the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees? In fact, why aren't they fasting like the Jews in general? Well, Jesus responds regarding this, and He gives two illustrations. His first answer in verses 19-20. through Again, we'll read that. He says, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So he says, the friends of the groom, when the groom comes in, they're not fasting. They're with him and they're feasting. They're, they're enjoying this time. In fact, they're probably working hard, preparing for what is to come. But when the bridegroom leaves, that's when they fast. So that's his first answer to them. His second answer in verse 21 and 22 No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. So he uses this very um, very applicable illustration here. Something they would have certainly understood if you've got, if you've got some clothes and, and it's a, an old garment that gets a tear and you put a new patch on it. Was well, as that patch begins to shrink, it's going to destroy the, the old garment. It's going to make that tear even worse. And if you have new wine and you pour that into your old wineskins, their old wineskins were oftentimes made out of organic materials. And so if you pour that new wine into this old wineskin, it's going to destroy that wineskin. It's going to burst and you're going to lose all your wine and, and it's all ruined. So he says these are the two examples, the two answers that he gives for them. And in an explanation of what he is saying is therefore, because He gave two answers, it's twofold. First, He says, it's inappropriate for My disciples to fast while I am with Him. While I am there, it makes no sense for them to fast. I am the bridegroom. Why would the the, the friends of the bridegroom be fasting at a time when He was with them? The purpose of fasting can be seen very well in Leviticus 23, verse 32. That's that verse I said we would go back to. When He tells them that they are to humble themselves in the New American Standard. It says, <clears throat> it is to be a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at, at evening. So, what, you're, what, what New American Standard says is humbling, other translations say afflicting, other translations say denying the purpose behind there. If we we're doing a thought-for-thought translation, that makes very sense to say that this afflicting of the soul is for the purpose of humbling the soul. But it doesn't make a lot of sense in an action, a thought-for-action translation that's why some translations just come right out and say what it is that's supposed to be causing the humbling and it is the denying themselves or the fasting or or the not eating of food the purpose of this fasting was to produce a humility in them was to lower themselves in their own eyes and this led this humility which uh, that they were supposed to be trying to bring about in their soul was to lead to the attention of god for God to hear their prayers. For God to see them. So maybe a long story short, they wanted God to hear the prayers that they had. They wanted God to see them. They wanted God to care for them. They wanted God to provide for them. And fasting was a way in which they added to their prayers to go about doing that. Now as previously mentioned, the old law commands one fast on the Day of Atonement. All the other fasts that we were reading about are our fasts that get into the idea of ritualism and traditions. And they are carried over from godly men like David and Moses and Elijah. These were godly men whose examples they were following. But by the time we get to Christ, we're also getting into rabbinical law. Rabbis who said, this is what this rabbi taught on this, and this is what that rabbi taught on this, until you get to the point where it's like, I have to fast twice a week for me to be spiritual. We can see how that shifts away from what was originally written. Like much of the law of the Jews by the time Christ came and the Sermon on the Mount. He spoke often, you have heard it said. But this is what, it, what I really wanted you to know. You have heard it said that you, that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But. And he would go into what God originally wanted for them. And this is very much a similar thing. They had heard it said over and over again what fasting was. And Jesus was saying, that's not what fasting is. <coughs> And so, one, his explanation to them about why they don't fast is why would they fast whenever I'm here with them? But number two, why would they fast in accordance to the way that you all think fasting should go when that does not sync up with the teaching that I am bringing? It is not going to mesh with that. Ritualistic fasting would be out of sync with this new doctrine that verse 27, Mark chapter 1, talks about. What is this, a new teaching with authority? They recognize he is coming and he's teaching something that is different, and he's teaching as if he has the authority to do that, and he did have the authority to do that. And he's saying, What you all are holding fast to in fasting doesn't match up with what I'm teaching. Their thoughts revolved around traditions at best, and Jesus had the authority and exercised that authority to do more than just create new traditions. He was fulfilling the old law. He was fulfilling the purpose of the old law and ushering in a new covenant. So the traditions of Judaism, they would be incompatible with a religion of Jesus. And this is what He's driving at whenever they ask Him this question. So was then Jesus saying we might need to step back and say, well, then, okay, if that's the case, was Jesus saying that fasting is incompatible with the New Covenant? Fasting has no place at all in the New Covenant? Let's take some observations from this text and from other texts that, that support it and see what we can learn about what Jesus desired in the regards of fasting. Number one, in Mark chapter 2, verse 20, his, He indicates His disciples will fast. Verse 20 He says the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in that day. In Jesus' ministry on earth, uh, what was over, He was saying there's going to be a time when fasting is appropriate, when fasting makes sense, but it doesn't make sense when God is with them, when, when I am with them. Remember, part of the purpose was to get God's attention. I'm here with you on the earth. Doesn't make sense for fasting at this time, but there will be a time when my ministry is over, when I have left, and fasting will make sense. So we can conclude: Jesus doesn't rule out fasting altogether. Mark chapter 2, verse 20, we can understand that. He doesn't completely throw fasting out as if it has no purpose. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 16, uh, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually teaches on fasting. In Matthew 6, verse 16. He speaks about a way of fasting that is pleasing to God. Whenever you fast, starting in verse 16, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that, you are fa- so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So during his Sermon on the Mount, he said there is a way that you are to fast. If you're going to fast, you fast in a certain manner. You don't fast so that other people can see it. Again, remember the purpose. You're trying to get God. You're speaking to God. You're pouring your heart out to God. So this is done to God, not to the people around you. You fast in a certain manner. And there is a fasting that is pleasing to God. And so we can conclude then That Jesus not only did not throw fasting out, He maybe even expected that His disciples would fast in an appropriate time and in an appropriate way. And then we see that in the early church. They were involved in fasting. If you look over in the book of Acts, there are times when the church got together for fasting. Acts chapter 13 In the first three verses of that chapter, we see what begins the first missionary journey of Paul. And he says in verse 1, it says, There were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. We have an example in the first century of of churches that looked to Jesus' teachings on fasting and saw that it was was something that was, was applicable to them and they were involved in it. This isn't the only place in chapter 14 we see it again. Chapter 14 verses 21 through 23 says thereafter, they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystria and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This was not just a one-time occasion. This was something that we see over and over again uh, in, in the example of the church that they were involved in fasting. Some of your translations may even speak about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11. How he, he even seems to indicate that he spent time in fasting personally. What we see then is that when fasting joined with prayer, it is an appropriate and it is suitable For Christians to follow that example. So, if that was what was going on then, Jesus talks about it, the Christians in the early century follow it, when would it be proper for us today to fast? And the answer would be whenever we require God's help. Whenever something requires, whenever the circumstances look and need God in assistance in some way, then it is appropriate for us to fast. On an individual level, there might be temptations that we are struggling with. Something that we have tried to overcome time and time again. Maybe we have failed over and over again to try and, and overcome this temptation. Maybe we been relying way too much on ourselves. And, and to go to God in prayer at that time, and maybe couple that with fasting. That would be appropriate. In the example that we saw of David, maybe with a loved one who is, who is sick, to spend time fasting and in prayer would be an appropriate thing for a Christian to do. Congregationally, one that we saw pointed out, one that I think about often for this congregation, is in appointing elders. In, first, in, in Acts 14, we read that, that when they appointed elders in every church, they did so by fasting and praying. That's an important decision. That's a huge decision. Monumental in a church deciding to be organized the way God desires for it to be organized. And it shouldn't be entered into flippantly we should spend much time in prayer. And it can be very helpful to add to that prayer this this fasting. Fasting and praying that that maybe the fears that that are so oftentimes accompanied with with setting men, weak men, men that are tempted, men that are able to to be pulled away to shepherd a congregation. We could spend time fasting and praying for those fears to not overcome us. For those fears not to dictate how how we follow God. There are many times. And so it might be best just to say that when the circumstances call for much prayer, then fasting can be beneficial to add to that. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, we won't read all of this, but in the first eight verses of Luke 18, Jesus gives this parable speaking of the benefits of of prayer. And He speaks about the woman who, who goes to the unrighteous judge, the wicked judge, and she pesters Him day and night over and over again to hear her cause. And finally, He says, if I don't answer this woman, she is going to kill me. It's driving me nuts. And so He gives her answer. And Jesus says in verses 6-7, through seven, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will God not bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay along over them Jesus knows, and Jesus wants us to know, prayer, prayer is powerful. Prayer is, is able, it reaches the ears of God. He hears it. He he knows us, he knows our thoughts. But in Matthew chapter 6, what we just read a minute ago, I'm sorry, I read that without putting it on the board, didn't I? I apologize. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 17-18. He says, when you have fast, anoint your head, wash your feet, uh, your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men. But your father is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus believed two things in regards to this. Prayer is powerful. Prayer works. Fasting works too. Fasting has a purpose. Fasting cannot become a ceremonial ritual. Fasting cannot become something that says I'm more spiritual than you. Because as Jesus taught, fasting isn't between me and you. Fasting is between me and God. Between you and God. But for the appropriate occasion, fasting can be a great help. But it seems odd. It seems weird. And I love this quote. Uh, a man by the name of Richard Foster said that in a culture where landscape is dotted with the shrines to the golden arches, an assortment of pizza temples... Fasting seems out of place and out of step with the times. And I, he hit the nail on the head. I thought that as I was preparing this, how is a fat guy going to preach about fasting? That is a, that is a strange thing to think about. But fasting is not about health. Fasting is not about, uh, in this regard, it, it, it's not about just making sure that, that we don't go eat a meal. Fasting is about communing with God in prayer. It's about opening our hearts up to Him. And so we may set aside some time during the day. We may set aside one meal. We may set aside the whole day. We may not eat meat. We may not eat meat or drink. But fasting is a time in which we set something aside so we can say, I'm not going to spend that time in that. I'm going to spend that time in prayer. It's not about just not eating. It's about praying. It's about communing with God to bring Him the, the, the cares and the concerns and the thanksgivings of our hearts and to unload those at His feet. Views about fasting usually go to two extremes. Some view fasting as so inconsequential that it, had, it needs no reason to be brought up. We won't talk about it. We won't think about it. While others go to the other extreme and bind it like it's a matter of faith such as baptism. But I hope that from this, this very brief study, that we have observed there is a place of fasting, but its place is not, as a, as a, it's not a place of, of faith. It's not something that is ritualistic that makes us more or less faithful. It is left primarily to the individual discretion of the Christian, but it is a great tool, a great way to humble ourselves before God, joining with prayer and soliciting the help of the Lord. And we would do, do well to carefully consider this subject more, to to, to study through this subject, look at every opportunity we can of the fasting that it speaks about in the Bible and learn the principles and the attitudes behind it because it would be a shame to have this great spiritual tool at our disposal and, and to neglect it. I want you to think about that for a moment. God loved us enough to give His only begotten Son. John 3.16 He loved us so much to give the life of His Son for us. That should be the end of that story. We should ask ourselves, can anyone top that? Can anyone top the Creator of the world, the, the, the God over everything who says I will give My Son for a people that rebel against Me, for a people who hate Me, for a people who, won't, who haven't followed Me? The immediate answer to that question is, no, you can't top that. God says, I can. I'll give you more. I gave you my son. I give you tools as well. Because God wants to have a relationship with us. God wants to spend eternity with us. And that makes no sense to me. When I look at myself, why would God want to spend any time with me? And yet He has paid so much for my soul and given so much so that we can be with Him forever. And tools such as fasting. Tools such as the, 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 the fruits of the Spirit that He gives us to try and increase in. The, the, the Word of God that is our, our defense against Satan. He provides us so much. And yet, so oftentimes, we neglect those things that He provides us. In our class this morning, I want to close on this note. In our class this morning, we spoke about Elijah and the ravens that fed him. And I was asking the the children, what what did you learn from this? And they had all sorts of fascinating things. Ravens can carry food. I hadn't really thought about that. That was not one I expected to hear. One of them said, God loves us enough to provide for us. That's a great lesson that we learn from Elijah, a man who followed God A man who is experiencing the hardships of living in a sinful world. The hardships of living in a sinful world say that we are infected with that. We are involved in that sin in our lives and it creates death. A separation from us and God. And God loved us enough to provide for us. Provide the food that we need in His Word. Provide the healing that we need in the blood of His Son. He sends him to earth to die, and in his death and in his life, he calls us to be like him. Maybe that's a thought that we haven't really given a lot of thought to. He calls us to join him in death. In Colossians chapter 3, he speaks to Christians in that day and says, You died with him and were risen up. In Colossians chapter 2, just prior to that, he speaks to them how when they died with the immersion, into the blood of Christ, that the sins like a surgery were removed from their lives. That's still a, It was available then. It's still available today. If we will follow after Him, if we will turn from this desire to be our own man and to make our own decisions and to follow after Christ, to let Him be the Lord and the King of our lives, it's called repentance. And to confess that we believe He is the Son of God. To be buried, immersed. We oftentimes call it baptism to be buried completely in water for the forgiveness of our sins. He is just and He is faithful to do that. And we want to help you. I want to help you do that today. So if you've been thinking about those things, don't delay any longer. Come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.